Let's take a minute to pray this morning before we go to the Word. Father in heaven, I just want to ask you this morning that you would give us eyes to see what you want us to see. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us where we need comfort. And I pray your Holy Spirit would whisper in our ears just exactly what your will is for our lives today from this word. And may you be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So believe it or not, we're going to look at one verse of scripture over the next two weeks. And uh, when I tear apart a scripture, I tear apart a scripture. So we don't make it through tough times we're made through tough times. Although undeniably true, those words are nevertheless unpalatable to us a lot of the time, especially when we're the ones experiencing the pain of that trial. Somewhere deep inside of us, we know the importance of recognizing victory, then the personal triumph that these statements uh, that I just made represent, we sense their validity, yet we recoil at the implication of them. The implication is that in the process of growing up in life and growing strong in Christ, that we will all likely encounter some kind of suffering in our lives. We'll do time, so to speak, with adversity. And our tendency is to use certain scriptures to help as helpful counsel for the other guy's dilemma. But we often fail to see the relevance or the relief contained in those same scriptures for our own experience of pain when we go through it. Texts like these, for example, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 1. Now 1 Peter 1. Consider it all joy, my, I'm sorry, James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then 1 Peter 1 verse 6, And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed, by various trials. Those kinds of scriptures rarely make us feel good about our circumstances when people tell them to us, right? The reality, however, is that these words of God are absolutely true. Amen? They're true. They're spiritually medicinal. They're spirits, the spirits solve for the weary soul. And right now, I know there are many people in the believing community, not just this one, but in all believing communities post-COVID that I've encountered anyway, who are weary in their souls. There's a lot of it going on. Joe Stowell, former president of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, once made this arresting statement in his book, The Upside of Down, All of Life Runs Unsettlingly Close to the Ditch. It's true, isn't it? Unless I miss my guess, he speaks to where a lot of people are today. Eliphaz, one of Job's misguided comforters, put it this way in Job chapter 5, verse 7. He says, people are born for trouble as predictably as sparks fly upward from a fire. Trouble, one writer suggests, is indiscriminate in its timing and in its choice of targets. 
In fact, the entire landscape of our existence is vulnerable from health to emotions, mind, finances, marketplace, family and friends. Trouble stands at the brink of it all, waiting to make its unwelcome, untimely, usually unexpected entrance. No one is exempt from it. No arena of life is out of bounds. Feeling good yet? So what do we do with all this trouble? How should you and I respond to it? Well, a book I once read described life like a jigsaw puzzles. Anybody do jigsaw puzzles in this crowd? Yeah? For, for any one of us, life can often seem like a thousand pieces spilled out onto the table, confused, disoriented, senseless, and tragic. And when we're here with a crisis, when we begin seeing Job's experience from the inside, and it may involve your marriage, it may involve the ministry, it may involve the tragic loss, your kids, your business, or maybe even a health issue, when all of us, all of life is running unsettlingly close to the ditch, where can we find personal consolation? How can we know peace when all the pieces don't fit? How should we respond to the terror of, of the seemingly random circumstances of life? What is it that caused Job to stop asking questions of God? What was it that Joseph, the favored and spoiled son of Israel, uncovered at the midpoint of his life at 39 years of age? Well, the answer is embedded in today's text. One verse of Scripture that has become so familiar, so cliche, so routine, so run-of-the-mill in Christian circles that we often don't even take the time to say the words. We simply throw out a chapter in a verse, and you've heard it, and I've heard it, we all have heard it. It goes something like this. Having a tough day? Well, don't forget Romans 8.28. Or it's a terrible tragedy what happened, isn't it, to their family? But, you, you know, we've all got to believe in Romans 8.28. We say it so flippantly, so glibly, as if it were the quintessential verbal panacea for every problem that we encounter. Unfortunately, we have abused that scripture to the point where we fail to grasp the depth of its meaning and oftentimes have forgotten its strength to hold us through the storms that we encounter. Listen to the verse with new ears as J.B. Phillips paraphrased it. Moreover, we know that those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Here's the upshot. Every believer in Christ is involved in a lifelong process, a process orchestrated by the will of God, by the hand of God, by which we are becoming like Christ. Amen? For whom he foreknew, the scripture says in verse 29, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God has no process without good as its purpose. So I want you to say that with me. God has no process without good 
as its purpose. You're going to hear me repeat that a lot today and next week. As Eugene Peterson paraphrased the meaning of this, he says, that's why we can be so sure that every detail of our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided at the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the lines of his son. And what characterized Jesus? He went through times of suffering, didn't he? We just celebrated it but he came out on the other side of that suffering and God worked it for good for you and me and that's why we're here right now and that's why we have this word and that's why we're talking about this. Notice, however, what the verse does not say. By the way, turn in your Bibles if you have them to Romans chapter 8 if you're not there already. Notice what the verse does not say. It does not say everything will turn out okay in this life. That's not what it says, right? It says rather, and this is the Pastor Russ Cottonwater interpretation, that for those who love God, those who are being chiseled and shaped and pruned and caressed by God into the image of Jesus, those who have been called according to his sovereign and his perfect purpose, for them, everything in life will work out for their ultimate good. That's what it's really saying. Now, there's a huge difference between that and the first statement I made about everything in life's going to be okay. You see, the first statement, the one I just said right now, uh, that everything in life's going to be okay, is a false security blanket. The second statement that I just gave to you is a true blanket of security. Huge difference. Everything in life does not always turn out okay. Anybody testify to that? You know it and I know it. In this world, we have trouble. But for those who are in Christ, the power to overcome our pain is in knowing that God is processing all things toward a good end, ultimately. Everything that occurs in the life of, the fo of a follower of Jesus Christ has purpose. God superintends it for our own good. That's the guarantee of Romans 8.28. And when we truly get a grasp on it and understand it, it changes our perspective on everything. We learn, say it with me, that God has no process without good as its purpose. Every, a very prominent pastor once stood in a church foyer and he said to a set of relieved parents, quote, God has certainly been good to spare your son, unquote. Because the night before, their son had been in a terrible auto accident. And he, he was rushed to the hospital more than an hour away for special treatment. And all night he hung on to life by a thread, but he made it through and he was in the clear. But standing right next to his parents was another couple whose daughter had been killed in a car wreck a few years prior. It was at that moment that the depth of the verse, Romans 8.28, hit the pastor square between the eyes. And he was thinking to himself, had not God been good to them? What did that say about his definition of good? What do you suppose his comment meant to the parents who were less fortunate? 
You see, God has no process without good as its purpose. Understanding that changes everything, everything. For believers, it means first that there can be spiritual stability in the midst of our emotional confusion. And we know, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Notice those first few, that first phrase, and we know. The Bible teaches that our greatest resource in the painful experiences of life is not what we feel, but what we know. That's why it's so incredibly dangerous to build your theology on emotion alone can illustrate that very clearly with the experience of Naomi in Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. If you want to, you can turn there. Um, Ruth chapter 1, and look at verse 19 as I read. So, you know, basically, hopefully you know the situation of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law, all the husbands had died. The two, the two daughter-in-law's husbands had died. Uh, Naomi's husband had died, and she sent them away, except for Ruth decided that she was going to stay with her mother-in-law. And at verse, verse 17, he says, So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's what the word Mara means. And went out full, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned and with her, Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, that's the beginning of the book of Ruth. Naomi's like, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Because <laughs> God's really wrecked me. I'm suffering affliction, and I don't see any way out of it. Now, turn to the end of the book in verse four, uh, chapter 4. Look at what is being said right now in verse 13. After the whole story, and if you don't know the story of Ruth and Naomi, I suggest read it this week. It's a short book. You can read it really quickly. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive and gave birth to a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took up the child and laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if you follow that genealogy far enough into the New Testament, you find out that they're the father of Jesus. Naomi went bitterly back to Bethlehem, and it all seemed pretty bleak. 
And by the end of the book, there's a promise of a Messiah. Incredible. How God can take all things and work them toward good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I've read that pilots flying in a storm or in darkness can quickly become disoriented and deceived by their senses. You see, pilots have said that when flying without visibility, they can be flying in a tight circle when their senses assure them that they are flying in a straight line straight ahead. Now, when a pilot becomes disoriented in this way, his body is telling him one thing and his instruments on the panel are telling him something completely different. In order to keep flying safely, he must rely on what? The instruments, not what he's feeling. They will tell him what is actually and absolutely true. So friends, scriptural truths like Romans 8, 28 and James 1, 2 and 3 and Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 are the instruments on the panel that keep us on course regardless of what we're feeling inside. James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, not when, but whenever you encounter. Not if, but whenever. Various trials, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Have you ever someone who's, uh, heard someone who's hurting say these words? From the neck up, I know it's true. God will use this tragedy for good. But in my heart, this situation makes no sense whatsoever. Joe Stoll again comments, he says, we assume that if it only makes sense in our heads, it's not helpful, but it is. Part of the process of working through pain is learning to hang on to what we have from the neck up, okay? Sometimes we have to go with what we know. Go with what we know. What do we know? Well, we know these things from Scripture. God told Israel, in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans for good, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. We know that God has a sovereign plan. Do we know that? Scripture tells us that. What else do we know? Secondly, we know that God holds all, holds all power in his hands. Read Job 42, 2. Matthew 19, 26. Revelation 19, 6, we know that God holds all power in his hands. We know thirdly that God has a process that he's leading us through. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 say that. Now, I'm not looking up these verses right now because we're going to unpack them in a little bit. But we know that God also has a purpose for every event under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, right? To everything there is a season. To every, everything is a purpose under heaven, God says. Now, knowing these truths about God surrounds us with security in at least four ways. Number one, because God has a plan, we can experience certainty in the midst of randomness, life-seeming randomness. Paul says, and we know. It means that we can know with absolute knowledge. That none of the events of our lives are haphazard. They're not a string of random coincidences that happen to us. Everything that comes to pass plays a part in a plan that is personally designed, skillfully woven together, and strategically orchestrated 
by an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving Father. Psalm 139, David epitomizes the wonder of, the, God's ma- of a master plan. From the warmth of the womb to the depths of the sea, we cannot escape the fact that our lives are directed by God's hand. Amen? Turn to one Psalm 139 for a moment. Let's read a couple of verses out of that. Verses 1 through 7 and then verse 16. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and you laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. See what that says? That nothing that happens to us is random because he is perfect in his power. Amen? He is perfect in his wisdom. He is eternal in his being. He is perfect in his holiness. What could give us more security than that? We can be certain that no matter how shaky the plan looks to us, we can trust his design. I read that just outside Madrid, Spain, there exists a famous Escorial, one of the greatest cathedrals ever built by man. The ancient monastery of the Augustinians, the order that produced Martin Luther, for centuries the kings of Spain had been buried there. When that magnificent structure was under construction, the architect designed this vast arch in this huge complex, okay, perhaps bigger than anything he had ever built before, that had ever been built before at that time. However, that arch was so flat at the top that the reigning king was frightened by the prospect of that tremendous weight of that that structure was going to, the, the roof was going to collapse everything probably on his head someday. So he commanded the architect build a column from the floor all the way to the center of the arch to hold it up. The architect protested vehemently about that, saying that the arch was absolutely sound and it would never, it would never fall apart. Well, even though he protested, he went ahead and built it because the king forced him to and the king worshipped contentedly in the vast structure, having seen it to himself that the ceiling would not fall. Well, the years went by and the church stood and the king finally died. Only then did the architect reveal that between the top of the column that he built and the bottom of the arch that he first built, there was a quarter of an inch of space between them. And it was reported when I read this that today a lath is still passed between the column and the arch for everyone to see, and it stands as proof of the rightness of the architect's structure and his his design. So it is with the plan of God. 
That overarching plan that encompasses all of reality and all of life, it needs no human support to hold it up. Men build their little columns, but God has a way of making them fall a bit short, Donald Gray Barnhouse said. So that in the end, it can always be demonstrated that his plan, like the arch, rests on its own foundation and it needs no other support. God is Lord of all and he is working out his purpose in our lives, in all of the world and through the entire universe. Amen? Because God has a plan, we can experience certainty in the seeming randomness of life. God's divine plan doesn't need any human support. Secondly, because God holds all power, we can embrace his sovereignty in the midst of life's chaos. In Living by God's Surprises, Harold Myra wrote these words. He said, my pastor, Bob Harvey, tells how early in his ministry a close friend died. And in an effort to comfort the widow, also a close friend, Bob shared all his seminary textbook explanations of how and why God might have let this happen. But the woman rebuked him lovingly, said, I don't need a God like that. I don't need to understand all this. What I need is a God who is bigger than my mind. See, what we know about God through Scripture provides mental anchors that can steady us when it seems like life is making no sense. But to be fair, we all need a God who is bigger than what you and I know in our minds, amen? And at the end of Job's roller coaster ride, when he came to the end of himself, he realized he needed more than just knowledge. This is what Job said in Job 42.5. He said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee put my hand on my mouth. In other words, I don't have anything left to say. Paul says, and we know that God causes. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. God's sovereignty is implied here, and that's a little unsettling itself, isn't it? Do you realize that absolutely nothing can come into our lives without God's sovereign permission? We read in the New Testament that the demons had to entreat the permission of Jesus to enter into the herd of swine when they were expelled from a man which they possessed. Remember that in Matthew chapter 8? Satan had to get permission to put Peter through the sifting process in Luke 22, Jesus said. Nothing can touch you or me until it is first passed through the will of our Father who knows us better than we know ourselves. Absolutely nothing. Everything that has ever happened to you or will ever happen in your life, God has allowed it. Does that mean that he's caused the evil in your life to take place? That he caused you to be tempted beyond what you thought you could handle? Did he cause you to sin? Does he actually produce Illness and divorce and death and the tragic and painful circumstances that we encounter in life? Does he cause those things? Well, the scripture teaches us otherwise. His holiness precludes that kind of thing, right? The fact is, is that God in his infinite wisdom allows certain crises to enter the lives of those who love him for the purposes of our good. 
and others he has excluded. He knows that we can ha- what we can handle and what we cannot handle. And for that, for every single person in this room, that's something different. Better yet, it's not just what we can handle. He knows that he can handle anything if we allow him to. Amen? I read a devotional this week, the line, and it was kind of referred to a little bit, uh, alluded to the same principle this morning, is that sometimes it seems like our lives are out of our control, right? But we know that our lives are not out of control. God has control of them if we're in him. Even if we're not in him, he has control of them. Again, the classic biblical example is the life of Job. As frustrating as it is to read the account of what Job suffered, we realize that Satan could not have touched anything in his life without God's sovereign permission. But even then, Satan was limited. God refused to allow Satan to take Job's life. And you may ask, why did he allow any of it? Pastor, you're not making me feel any better with all of this. You're just making it worse. You're telling me that God's allowing all of this pain I'm going through. Why would he do that? Well, the answer, as we've already seen, emerges in Job 42, verses 1 to 6, if you uh, are there. Turn there. We'll read it together. Job Job 42 and verses 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job finally came to know God, really know God, not simply intellectually, but personally. The adversity brought about by Satan and allowed by God ultimately brought Job to a deeper understanding and personal relationship with God, with the God that he worshiped. And he came to know that though life is chaotic, God can overrule all of that, the most tragic events of life, and turn them into a wonderful blessing for us. But because God has a plan, we can experience certainty in the midst of life's randomness. Because God holds all power, we can embrace his sovereignty in the midst of life's chaos. Thirdly, because God has a process, there exists continuity in the midst of life's disharmony. Again, Romans 8.28 says this, if we break it down, and we know that God causes all things to work together. Work together. Work together is really one word in the original language, which means to cooperate. It's the word from which we derive our English word synergism. You know what that word means? Synergism is basically the working together of different elements to achieve an overall effect of which each individual is incapable of having on its own. Okay? Perfect example of this is table salt, common table salt. 
What you put on your food and taste great on McDonald's french fries is simply the right combination of two elements, right? Sodium and chlorine. Which if we ingested them separately would poison us. Look at the image behind me. See those overlapping colors? What do they create in the middle? A cross. You wouldn't see that cross if those individual parts weren't working together in synergy. God is the source which causes everything in our lives, all things, to synergistically blend together in order to achieve the good result that he intends for us. I remember when I was a kid, and this is dating. I'm dating myself now. Some of you won't even know who I'm talking about. I remember when I was a kid watching the Dick Van Dyke show. Anybody remember that? Right? Or Gilligan's Island. Or even more up to date, Jim Carrey and some of his movies. I used to love it when Dick Van Dyke would come in the room and he would trip and fall and roll and get tangled up in people and furniture in a sequence of comical mishaps, right? Somehow, he would always end up just exactly where he was supposed to be in the end as if some overruling force was guiding him through all these catastrophes to a perfect end. But those catastrophes, as you well know, were not random, were they? Somebody writing that script put all of that together and they choreographed it all so he would end up exactly where he was supposed to and all the while causing us to laugh our heads off. That whole sequence was a result of a well-timed, well-choreographed, pre-designed plan. Now, it may be a very poor analogy, but God our Father is, guiding for, is the guiding force of all the elements in our lives. Is that not right? Every element in the believer's life. He takes our triumphs, our tragedies, our compassionate acts, as well as our sinful departures, and our harmoni- he harmonizes all of them, working them together for our good. Now, the nation of Israel stands as a living example of this truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, In verse 11, in verses 15 and 16, God says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you. And then it says, To do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. Now, though it seems unacceptable to us, God uses even those evil things in life for the ultimate good of his people. The Lord brings about good through the evils of suffering and temptation and sin by overruling it and overpowering it and reversing its effects for those who are called his children. And the ultimate picture of that is obviously what? The cross. The death of his son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as John MacArthur put it, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God took the most absolute evil that Satan could devise and turned it into the greatest conceivable blessing he could offer to fallen mankind. Eternal salvation from sin. You see, God has a plan. God holds the power and God has a process. 
Romans 8.28 says that behind the scenes of our life story is the sovereign hand of God and he's putting the pieces of the puzzle together and it's going to be something incredibly good when it's all said and done. I love the prophet Joel's words regarding Israel's future. Joel chapter 2, verse 25 and 27 says, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, and my people will never be put to shame. Friends, I'm convinced that Scripture is true when it says no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Whatever it is you're going through, or I'm going through, good or bad, it's all part of God's purpose if you're a child of God to conform you to the image of Christ and to bring you to that end. Whatever it is, God will make something beautiful from the ashes. That's what it says in Isaiah 61.3. And we've got people sitting here that could testify to that fact. Even as he used the captivities of Israel and Judah ultimately for their good, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's what he was saying to Israel, and Israel has a future and a hope. Because God is a plan, we can experience certainty in the midst of life's randomness. Because God holds all power, we can embrace his sovereignty in the midst of life's chaos. And because God has a process, there exists con continuity in the midst of life's disharmony. And finally, because God has a purpose, we can expect prosperity in the midst of life's tragedy. Now, don't get scared. I'm not asking you to adopt a health and wealth gospel a word of faith theology. When I say the word prosperity, I'm talking about something completely different than they are. Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good. And that's what we'll study in detail next time. I believe this text warrants taking the time to look closely at some of the biblical purposes for suffering and pain and the tragedies of life and what the glorious results are when we trust in the power of God to bring his good purpose to bear in our lives. The key to understanding Romans 8.28 in the way is the way that we respond to our circumstances, good or bad. That choice makes all the difference in whether we will come forth as inconsolably bitter or indescribably better. Like Joe, we must choose for God, knowing that he is for us, despite the fact that he seems distant and unconcerned, because I will guarantee you folks, he is not. He's not distant, he's not unconcerned, and we must remember that and repeat it over and over and over again for reassurance that God has no process without good as its purpose. Viktor Frankl, during his years in Nazi death camps during World War II, observed that the prisoners who exercised the power to choose how they would respond to their circumstances found a way to transcend their suffering. According to one writer's paraphrase of Frankl's discovery, quote, some chose to believe in God in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. They chose to expect a good tomorrow, and though there was little promise of one, 
My friends, the choices are never easy for us. They're never easy choices, but they must be made. They can be made. Another author, Nicholas Walterstorff, a Yale philosopher, arrived at the conclusion very similar to Frankel's. After losing a son in a tragic mountain climbing accident, he journaled his experiences of grief and later published them in a book by the title Lament for a Son. And he wrote these words, quote, in the valley of suffering, despair, and bitterness, are, in the valley of suffering, despair, and bitterness are brewed. But they're also in that battle, character is made. The valley of suffering is the veil of soul making. And his observations echo the truth of God written in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. And we'll close with this. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Because God has a purpose, we can expect something good to come out of life's adversities. It depends largely on whether you attempt to embrace them or avoid them. I have this picture in my mind, one of the best mental images that a story has ever etched in my main account came from the account of the Scottish-American naturalist John Muir at the top of a Douglas fir tree in the midst of a storm. I first read it in a book by Philip Yancey. Basically, what happened, there was a cabin up in the mountains to protect, that someone built to protect people from the cold and the elements. John Muir went up there. And during this one period of time, the year was 1874, Muir visited a friend who had that cabin. And one December day, a storm moved in from the Pacific, a, storm, a fierce storm that bent the trees almost double. And we could think that John Muir would have gone to that cabin and he would have sat by the fire with a cup of tea, sipping it and, and just being protected from the storm. But no, that's not what he did. In, instead of returning to the coziness of the cabin, the cabin, he went and found the tallest Douglas fir tree that he could find and he climbed to the top of it lashed himself to it and weathered the storm at the top of that tree so he could experience all the power of the winds of nature. Can you imagine that? He took it all in. It's rich sensuality, sensuality, it's primal energy. And Philip Yancey wrote these words, he says, throughout many retellings, the story of John Muir, storm whipped at the top of a Douglas fir tree, gradually took shape as a kind of icon of Christian spirituality for his family. And that icon had been, had, has been in place ever since as a standing rebuke against becoming a mere spectator to life, preferring creature comforts to creator confrontations. The spirituality has to do with life, a lived life. We must find satisfaction, said Gerald Sitzer, in the doing of life, not the getting done of it. However painful and adverse the circumstances in our lives, God has allowed them as good for our souls because he has no process without good as his purpose.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for all that it contains, and for the promises that it gives to us. Sometimes, Lord, those promises and what we know disturb us greatly and seemingly offer no comfort in our pain and anxiety. However, Lord, when we know that you are in control of everything and you're bringing everything about for our good, we can rest assured that one day we will know all the answers and we will rejoice in heaven with you. I pray, Father, for those that may be going through trials this week, today, even now, to comfort them, Lord God, with the truths of your word. Let them know that you care for them, that you have them protected in the palms of your hands, and that no storm would defeat them. For Jesus' sake, I pray.